my antidote that I speak about in the book is I'm not going to demonize and dehumanize those that disagree with me, even if I feel like what they're doing is absolutely, uh, it lacks decency. I'm not going to dehumanize them. We just have to find a better way. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. Thank you so much for being here. I'm honored that you've chosen to spend some time with me this week. Truly grateful. Before I introduce my guest today, I want to give you a heads up that we are starting a brand new series on Instagram Live called LGAD Live. Every Friday at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, I'll go live for an hour with someone I think you'll want to hear from. Some will be former podcast guests and others will be new friends that I want to introduce to you. If you give a damn and don't follow us on Instagram right now, what are you even doing with your life? Please change that today because we're sharing some meaningful things on there and I don't want you to miss this series. Our first guest last Friday was retired NFL linebacker, founder of Adaptive Training Foundation, and my good friend, David Vobora. You can watch our hour-long chat right now in our Instagram feed. And I hope you'll join us live. Every week, you'll be able to watch it after the fact, but it's better live. So at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time every Friday, grab a drink, join us so that you can interact, so you can ask questions, so on and so forth. It'll be a good time. Okay, our guest this week is the founder of One Day's Wages, the president-elect of Bread for the World, and the author of Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, Eugene Cho. Wait, that didn't come out right. I am not in any way telling Eugene in old English to not be a jerk. That is, however, the name of his latest book, his new book that came out a few weeks ago. Y'all, no bullshit. I truly enjoyed every single second of this conversation. Eugene is delightful, and he has so much to teach us. I could talk to Eugene for hours, and little does he know, I'm probably going to pester him soon to ask for more time because I just want to get to know him more, and I know that I have so much to learn from him, so much wisdom to glean from. So we have so much to learn from this lifelong damn giver. I can't wait for you to hear it, so let's jump right in, shall we? Here's my conversation with the one, the only, Eugene Cho. Let's go. Eugene Cho, thank you so much for coming on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, super excited you're here. So you're in Seattle, correct? I am in Seattle, and I will not be going anywhere anytime soon, and I hate it. Yes. (laughs) Oh, dude, same here. I mean, I I don't know where you are on the Enneagram or extroverted, introverted scale. Like, I am an off-the-charts extrovert. I am an Enneagram 8. I just want to be doing things and disrupting things and hanging with people. And it's been uh, a, kind of an interesting sort of like obviously mild torture, but torture might be the right word to have me at home all the time, not, yeah. not traveling, not doing things. It sounds like you like to have your hands in a bunch of things too. So you're probably missing out on just being with people and traveling and stuff. Yeah. you know, And to be honest, I'm the opposite of you. I'm an introvert. I'm an extreme introvert. I like being alone, but I don't like being locked up at home, feeling anxious, having my wife say, where are you going? Where are you breathing? Why are you doing this? Yeah. Uh, she's the opposite of I am. She's very cautious, which I really, really appreciate just in case she's listening to this. I love yeah, you, honey. That's right. Um, but yeah, I think it's just not having the freedom. And I love the outdoors. I love fishing. And so that's been something that I've had to really um, uh, put on hold for the time being. But obviously, you and I and others understand that this is uh, a serious situation and we got to do our part to, uh, to be safe. How is Seattle doing right now? Like, is there other phases going on to reopen? What is that looking like? You know, this is such an interesting conversation for me because, you know, I have friends like you all over the country and all over the world. Yep. And sometimes I forget how big the United States is. It is such a big country. And therefore, each region, each city goes through, I think, different phases. And Seattle was known as the epicenter of COVID-19 when it first came to the yep. United States. And so, man, it was really intense uh, early on. And the rest of the country were on beaches doing their thing. So having said that now, I think a lot of cities are looking at Seattle as 
one that's kind of going before them as a city that has experienced it intensely. And so we are opening things up, uh, national parks or local parks, recreational fishing, things of that nature. Farmer's market, it opened up in the first phase about two weeks ago. Okay. And so we're now entering into phase two. And supposedly sometime by early July, uh, while still practicing social distancing, things will be opened up. You know, I'm doing air yeah. quotes right now, but yeah. you know, uh, it's kind of the TBD. Uh, you know, we want everyone to do their part. And I think the city has done well on the most part, even though while I don't know your particular perspective and politics on things, the image that I just cannot uh, stomach is people with their machine guns and AKs. I just, it just, I don't know. I, I know you gave me permission to swear. There aren't enough right swear words yeah. to articulate how I feel about that. Um, so it's frustrating because yeah, um, th th there's room for there's room for all sorts of opinions and input, right? Because the reality is, no, none of us know what the hell we're doing, and very mm -hmm. few of us know what the hell we're talking about, right? We're you know we might be throwing out ideas or theories and stuff, but very few people know what's going on, and so. Again, I'm I'm all for let's have conversations. Are we opening too soon? Should we stay closed? Good. All that. But when you take to the streets with a, I mean, the guy that entered Subway the other day with a bazooka. I mean, I think that's the real term for it. Like on his strapped on his back. What in the hell are you doing out with a bazooka? Like that's not about that's not about uh, uh, protesting peacefully or saying, hey, we need to get back to yeah. work. No, that is. You are you are making a very clear and ridiculous statement with that, and to put up signs like "I need a haircut," you know, if it's if it's I'm I don't have any more money left and I'm gonna die if I don't go out. Totally, let's have that conversation. People are running out of money, but if right. your if your reason for going back, which was a ton of the signs that we saw right in like right. in Lansing, Michigan, and other places, was "I need a haircut," I don't care. Just buzz your head like it doesn't Ugh. matter. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's yeah. it's pretty hard to stomach those. I I, I feel yeah. you on that. Well, I want to give some advice for people that need a haircut. There's this thing called YouTube, and you could actually learn how to kind of semi do a decent job getting a haircut. I uh, I shaved my head for this. I shaved my head and my face. I started out with a lot of hair and, and a beard, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to shave it all off, and then I don't have to worry about it, and I'll grow it back out when we're back out in public. That's right. <laughs> but We're not going anywhere, man. No, no, we're not going anywhere. So, uh real quick before we jump into things i also i have a love for the seattle area we lived for four years in tacoma before mm -hmm. moving uh to nashville okay. and those were honestly our four favorite my wife and i've been married for 12 years we did the first four years in uh minneapolis and then we did four years in tacoma and then we've done almost four years in the southeast now and our favorite four years of our marriage and maybe of our lives mm. uh, kind of we're in the pacific northwest i mean All right it's we think every single day about why we left and there are reasons uh, about why we left and why we probably won't go back, but man, what a beautiful place to be and live. And you get the best of, I mean, literally you get the best of all worlds up there in the PNW. It's fantastic. Well, you're making me really sad because a year from now, my wife and I are going to make a cross country move from Seattle to DC. And so it has been a season of grieving uh, obviously, you know, we're not running away. We're running into vision yes. and call and, and, and what have you. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. This is one of the most beautiful places, not just in the country, but I think in the world, particularly in the summer, you know, uh, and so. Yes. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk and we'll talk about this cross country move that you're going to make, because I'm sure it's tied to your new role at Bread for the World. Um, but why don't we before we get into some of the things I want to talk about one day's one day's wages. I want to talk about Bread for the World, your books, all yeah. that. Before we get to that, give us a little bit for a few minutes, a little bit of context, your story. Where do you come from? What are the kinds of people, places and things that shaped you into who you are today? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was born in Seoul, South Korea, uh, immigrated when I was six years old. Both my parents were born in what is now called North Korea. Uh, it's really fascinating when people ask them, where are you from? They just say Korea. And then when they ask from the North or South, they're just like Korea. There was only one country yeah. at that time. But it kind of shows you even in one person's lifetime, there's been some significant dramatic shifts in their own context. But uh, we immigrated when I was six years old, and my parents were so obsessed with wanting that American dream for their kids. They were unable to go to school, experienced a lot of poverty, extreme poverty, 
every now and then my parents share stories about needing to pull out grass when they could find grass and consuming it because they had such hunger pangs wow. and needed to satisfy those hunger pangs. Uh, it was just two years ago at the age of 82 when my father shared with me that he had lived in a refugee camp for a short time when he was younger, separated wow. from his family during the Korean War. And it was really fascinating when I asked him why it took him 82 years to basically share that with me and to share that story. And his answer still, it's very haunting, but also very, very prophetic. He just said, some things are very painful. You don't share. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, all of us were comprised, we're a, a set of both beautiful things and traumatic things. And somehow by God's grace, we're able to live and do what we can. But uh, I grew up in San Francisco. Uh, that's where my heart is still, I think, to be honest with you. Uh, went to the public school systems there, flunked first grade because I was afraid to raise my hands because I didn't know a mm. lick of English. Uh, kids were brutal at times. And by the time I got to middle school, I was voted the shyest kid in middle school, developed a stuttering problem, uh, just had a really hard time with people. Uh, that was probably my biggest fear is just people, being mm. around people. So I think I'm an introvert for lots of reasons, but I think part of it is just kind of the way that I was uh, I was struggling through immigration and about belonging. Belonging was a huge thing. Like, who am I? Where do I belong? Am I American? Am I Korean? Uh, it's fascinating because even right now, sometimes when I raise questions about justice or about racism, particularly racism around COVID-19 and the, uh, the rise of anti-Asian rhetoric and racism that's going on, even to this day at the age of almost 50 years old, I still get people saying, go back home. Uh, so I feel very secure with who I am and my identity. But uh, for some, you know, it's always amazing. The idea of belonging is still a, a contested issue. Uh, but I became a follower of Jesus at the age of 18, right before college. And so college was very formative, went to UC Davis, double majored in psychology and theater, backtrack a couple of years, probably the thing that I'm most proud of uh, as a human being uh, was choosing to confront my biggest fear, which was public speaking. Mm. And so in high school, I auditioned for a theater play for Midsummer Night's Dream, was cast for the illustrious wall got two lines, but those two lines really, I mean, it sounds overly dramatic, but those two lines really changed my life. I think. Wow. It was just having the courage to name my fears, confront it, and didn't happen overnight, but it was just months and years about confronting some of those things. But double majored in psychology and theater in college. Uh, that was when I received kind of my, my call uh, to become a pastor, a minister. And so graduated college a year early drove cross country all the way to Princeton, New Jersey, uh, to hmm. embark on a master's, <clears throat> excuse me, a master's of divinity degree at seminary and went back to Korea as an adult, which was very formative too. I love that experience to go back with new, new lens, new perspective, met my wife there to be. And fast forward, gosh, 25, 30 years, here I am, uh, you know, 49 and a half years old, chatting with you, uh, trying to give a damn as well. So I love it. No, that's really cool. So was, was your family uh, religious or is that something you found later on? Where You know, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. My great-grandfather, according to kind of our family story, our great-grandfather was one of the first people in his village outside of a larger city called Pyongyang. Now, Pyongyang is a capital city today of North Korea. But supposedly, he was one of the first people to say yes to Jesus because of these crazy white Protestant missionaries that set sail across the world. And he was so gripped by the story of Jesus, came back home, shared this news with my great-grandmother. She also came to faith. And our whole household came to faith. So yes, spirituality, belief in Jesus, is it's, it has a prominent role in our family lineage and story. But I think uh, for myself, like, like a lot of folks who may grow up in a particular context or culture, I think they went, there was a season when I really resisted it, uh, maybe even despised it, especially when you were forced to go to church. And so my teenage years, I went through a lot of not just rebellion about spirituality and religion, I think just rebellion period about, what it, about identity as well. So it was uh, at the age of 18 when I think I made that personal kind of devotion, that personal decision, however you want to articulate it. You know, I think in the classic evangelical terminology, uh, 
25 years ago, I would say stuff like, no, I, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior in my heart. Um, but it was at that season when I basically came to a point where I just said, I don't know everything about you, um, but I know enough that I want to follow you and mm. devote my life as a follower of, of Jesus Christ. And that's been my journey for the past, gosh, uh, that was 18. I'm 49. So it's been a while now. Been a while. You talked a lot about being introverted and kind of, yeah, not very shy. You got this, this award that you probably didn't want to get of being the shyest kid in middle school. What, what, how did you become a damn giver? How did you become such a justice oriented person? Like how did that fit into your story um, where you went from, or maybe, I mean, not went from being shy. You said you're still introverted and stuff, but like yeah. went from being, you know, someone that probably didn't do too much outward talking and like seeking and looking for things to being somebody that did see problems and tackle them, which you've, we'll get to talk about them. Like you've tackled yeah. so many big problems in your life and your career so far. Yeah. You know, it's been an interesting journey. Uh, I always find it ironic that I was voted the shyest kid in middle school and yet they still knew me. I had no idea that people knew who I was, but there I was voted the shyest kid in sixth grade. But I think there's a, there's a couple reasons why uh, it's always mattered to me uh, as far as I can remember. And I think part of it is connected to my immigration story. As an immigrant, from the day one, I was just seen as an other. Now, I'm not trying to like vilify these first graders or second graders because sometimes we just don't know better. Yep. But I think it's very easy or tempting for us to see people that aren't like us. And sometimes, you know, in our mean-spiritedness, we can somehow then begin to bully others. So it's, I think, a fair statement to say I was otherized and bullied. I was pointed out as someone that didn't look like them. It didn't help that because I was so shy in elementary school that there were occasions where I would pee in my pants because mm. the scariest thing for me to do was to raise my hand and speak in public. And so, but I think it was just those kinds of experiences of being otherized, seen not as one of them. And so as a result, I feel like I have lived the bulk of my life on the margins. And I say that not to sound like a victim or to kind of perpetuate victimization, no, sure. but that's the lens by which I've always seen the world as far as I can remember. And then in middle school, you know, I, went, I lived in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. I'm grateful for the fact that I lived in a very diverse community and society. But I also then experienced kind of the bullying from another perspective, from another community of people from African-Americans. And then I kind of went through uh, lots of different things. When I began to explore the idea of Jesus, study Jesus, the, the thing about Jesus that most fascinated me was the fact that he just was inclined towards the edges and margins. Mm -hmm. He had an, a proclivity, an inclination towards those who were uh, forgotten and, and, and had experiences of injustice and, and what have you. And that's always fascinated me about Jesus. So when I became a Christian, because that was the part that really moved me, I was expecting that to be this um, a huge crescendo of momentum, learning more about these things. And ironically, I think after I became a Christian, I was surprised that it wasn't the case. Mm. Um, and I think I've always struggled with that. Even now as an institutional pastor ordained as a minister of the word and sacrament, I have my titles, my platforms, speak at conferences is trying to make sure that I myself am not forgetting the fact that my first encounter with Jesus was on the margins. Because sometimes I think in the church, we can try to move him at the center of things. And it's about power and privilege and all of those things as well. And I'm not suggesting that he's not everywhere, but a Jesus that's only in the center and not on the margins seems like a very, very scary proposition to me. Uh, but that's, you know, when people ask me why, it's, it's, it's always the way that I've seen, not just Jesus, but the way that I've read the scriptures. Yeah. I'm glad, you know, among other things, you pointed to uh, being an immigrant kid, right? My dad came here when he was a kid from war-torn mm. Guatemala. And we actually went back when I was uh, a young kid, we went back and lived there for 10 years. And that kind of put me on a trajectory of, uh, you know, then after high school, spending six years traveling the world, 30 something countries and spending a lot mm. of time overseas, mostly, wow. mostly with in, in, uh, kind of, uh, yeah, poor places, third world places with, uh, people, so many people on the margins, right. Mm. Uh, all over India, all over Africa in different places. And that I 
for me, I point so much of my shaping, my formation that I have mm. seen happen in my life back to uh, my what my dad and his family did coming here. And then my dad taking us back there for 10 years and the things that I saw and experienced there, I'll never forget them. I mean, they, mm. it, 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 it shaped every part of who I am today. Absolutely. And I can, and, and I can see how that, you know, that plus your, you know, the, the, you talked a lot about Jesus as well. Like he is clearly someone who went after people that everybody else was ignoring. That is without a, mm-hmm. without a doubt. You don't have to even have a religious, religious lens to see that you read the Bible. You're like, Oh, this dude cared about people that everybody ignored people on the margins, people on the outskirts. So that's really cool. Um, let's talk about one day's wages. We're going to talk about a few of the things that you've done and are doing, Uh, for the next section of our conversation. I think, I'm not going to give it away, for those that don't know about One Day's Wages, uh, I mean, you might be able to tell from the title, but (laughs) I think it's a fantastic way to, it's a fantastic vision, a fantastic way to get people's attention. Tell us about the organization, how it came about, where did that idea come from? Yeah, so thanks for asking. Uh, One Day's Wages is a nonprofit humanitarian organization that my wife and I and our three kids started about a little over 10 years ago. And, you know, because I've always given a damn, I've always cared, but I think the big tension for me is sometimes the connection between knowledge, uh, conviction, and then the embodiment of these things. You know, uh, whatever you want to call it, we can call it hashtag activism. We can call it slacktivism. You know, I'm not here to shame anyone, but I do know that it's a real tension in my life, even now and back then as well. So, you know, you go back about 15 years ago, I have been developing a reputation, particularly among Christian and Christian leaders, as a pastor who has a deep theology about justice, you know which is not a bad thing at all. But after a while, I began to really wrestle with the perception that people had of me, writing, blogging, all of these things, and then just feeling like there was a lack of resonance and connection. There was this dissonance, if you will. So I'm on this trip with a couple other pastors to do research because I love research. I love data. I love sciences. I think it helps us to make better decisions and all of that kind of stuff. And I knew so much about issues of global poverty. And again, global poverty meant a lot to me to begin with because that's my family story. That's my parents' story. Um, And I wanted to make sure that I could give back in ways that I uh, am able to give back. So I'm in uh, Myanmar, otherwise known as Burma, Burma, visiting some makeshift classrooms there. Uh, The genocide that was going on in Burma particularly during that time, was just so intense, but not many people knew what was going on. Uh, UN officials had said that the genocide going on in Burma at that time in the 80s, early 90s, was probably as intense, as diabolical as the situation in Darfur, but just not on the same scale of actual number of people being impacted. So we're in this village, makeshift village, doesn't even have a name. I think they were called village number 81 because they were constantly moving from place to place to place because the military government, they were after them. It was a small ethnic minority group called the Karin people. And I had a chance to visit a makeshift classroom. Imagine 15 tables, 15 chairs, none of them matching, this green, overused, overscarred chalkboard on its wall. And it was a classroom for first to fifth graders. And I'll never forget this. I walk in and there was the most hideous, the most graphic, the most violent collage of photos plaster taped on the chalkboard and now i'm not a teacher per se but in my mind all of these thoughts are going through my head like what the hell is going on here like that is not appropriate for a classroom of first to fifth graders and it was a collage of photos of men women and children with missing body limbs and blood oozing out of their bodies Mm. And again, I'm still not sure what's going on. I'm trying to be appropriate. Do I ask about this photo? And the guy who was hosting me, sensing that I was probably very disturbed, actually invites me to draw closer to the collage of photos. And he gets on his knees and he points to these bottom row. And it's, the bottom row is consisting of greenish, grayish, metallic contraptions. And in his best attempt to speak English, he says, Pastor Cho, these 
are landmines. We must teach children avoid landmines. Mm. Which explained why they felt the necessity to put these graphic photos to remind kids about, about the urgency of being cautious and careful. Uh, yeah, every time I share that story, I still just get um, goosebumps because yeah. it was just very haunting. And I had a chance to meet some of the survivors uh, of some of these landmines. And later that day, when I asked one of the leaders of the village what was challenging, knowing that I had visited a classroom, he had said, paying teacher salaries hard. And so I just asked, well, how much are their salaries? Uh, seems to be the most logical question to ask. And he sticks out his four fingers and says, $40 US. And in my naivete, I said, $40 per day. You know, he laughed. And I realized that's obviously a stupid comment to make. And so I said, I'm sorry, did you mean $40 a week? He laughs again, shakes his head. And at this point, I'm like, okay, wow, this is, this is more stunning than I thought. The next logical question was, do you mean their salaries are $40 a month? And at this point, I'm just stunned that I'm even asking this question, $40. He, I think, is at this point really irritated and shakes his head again. Not a year. And says, $40 one year. Hmm. Uh, And I, again, I say that not to try to impose guilt on any of your listeners, I think part of giving a damn is being truth tellers, yep. right? We've got to tell the truth, even if it sucks, even if it discourages us, even if it does make us feel uh, guilty, even though that might not be our intentionality. Um, and I was just stunned by it. $40 per year. I mean, um, you know, how much do we pay for our internet? Uh, and so I came back home, processed that with my wife, shared a little bit with my kids, you know, my wife and I, we just said, you know what, let's pray about it and see what we can do. In my mind, I thought I will, I'll write a great blog post. I was a prolific blogger back then. Uh, maybe I'll give a nice sermon, you know, maybe write a Facebook post. But I mean, this is crazy. We both decided to pray and we felt God convict both of us separately to give up one year's wages of our salaries. And I say that not to sound boastful, right? Because I know I've received my share of criticism. I mean, that was, it's not meant to sound boastful. It's not what we thought. It was a lot more difficult than we imagined because we don't have, at that time, my salary as a pastor was $68,000 lying under our mattress. So it took us on a journey of three years of saving, simplifying, and selling off things that we didn't need. And I'll just point this out that I think oftentimes when we give a damn about injustice, poverty, brokenness in the world, uh, obviously there are things that we need to change. Um, I think what surprised me was in this process of those three years, it really changed me and it really changed us. It really began to expose Mm. some of the things that I didn't realize that I held onto, you know? And so it kind of led me to eventually write a book called Overrated. Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing the world? And that book is really a confession. And I still struggle with it, if I'm honest with you. you know, It's a privilege for me to come on these podcasts and other podcasts and interviews and so forth. But it's a, it's a regular grind for me to connect my convictions, to, to say, when I say I give a damn, I'm not just talking about it into a nice microphone on a podcast. Sure but I'm I'm just trying to live it out. And there are good days and then there's not so good days. But anyways, going back to the story, in that three-year process, we were just inspired by this idea of starting something called One Day's Wages, where we wanted to inspire people around the world to consider just giving one day's of their wages, whether it be once a year, once a quarter, once a month, once a week. And um, lo and behold, we didn't want to ask people to do something that we weren't willing to do ourselves. So as, as best as we could, we shared our story about a middle-class family in Seattle trying to do our part. And it just kind of spread, you know, mm. and thus far we've had about 13, 14,000 people around the world partner with us. Some giving one day's wages, some giving $10, some giving $20. The best, the most inspiring donation we've ever received was an $86 donation from a 16-year-old high school student who sent in that $86 with the note, this is my eight-hour shift from Subway. 
Mm. It really captures kind of the heart of what we're trying to do. Yeah. That you don't have to be a billionaire or a rock star or a celebrity, but every single one of us, if we all give a damn, I mean, I think that's really it. If we all do give a damn, we're, we're going to be okay. Here's what I love about this, this, this organization you started and even the book title that you talked about, this book that you wrote is precisely that I think most people that are not actively doing something or giving a damn, it's because they're overwhelmed. They're focused on too much. There's, mm. They're focusing on all the things that are happening in the world, all the problems, all the things we could be working on that we could be fixing, and it gets so overwhelming, mm. and so they just plop on the couch exhausted from just thinking through it, and they just binge watch Netflix for another night. And versus just focusing and narrowing down and figuring out what is my world. Yeah. Instead of trying to change the world, what is my world? What yeah. what, what can I do that because because the, the reality is if all of us, if all 7. Point whatever billion people on the earth, everyone has something to offer even in the world. I mean, I've met kids in the slums of India in, in, that are in Hyderabad, India that are just they don't have anything. They have less than zero things. Mm. And and they have something to give. They have kindness. They have they have so many talented things they could be doing, right? So no matter who you are, and if all mm. of us did our small part, and for some it'll be bigger for you and for me and for other people, we've got a yep. bigger plate. We're doing more yep. things. We're starting things. But for so many people, that it feels so overwhelming. Stop thinking about all that. Do the hard work to figure out who you are and what you can do. And then do it right. like right. that. I mean, what it's you good. just shared, the kid at Subway, 86 bucks like that is so he could make all the excuses. He could have done that. I can't give this money. There's so much going on. What am I going to do for those people in Myanmar, mm. in Burma? Like, and he starts talking, getting in his head. And all of a sudden he's like, I'm out. I can't do it. Mm. He just said, no, I can do one day. I can do mm. one day. Here's my shift. Mm. Sent the money. You got it. And now years later, you're still telling that story, encouraging mm. people. So I love that. Are we more, of course, we're more in love with the idea of changing the world. It sounds so great. Every day we're quoting John Paul II. We're quoting Maya Angelou. We're quoting Martin Luther King Jr. We're so mm. excited about the idea yep. of being a world changer. And then it's exactly. like, well, what the hell are you doing about it? And it's like, well, you know, I got, I got student loans and I got kids and I got, totally, those are all hard things. So instead of trying to be the next Maya Angelou or the next, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or the next Mother Teresa, be you, the small yep. thing. What is the one, two or three things you can do in your community in rural, you know, outside of uh, Chicago and Illinois, like in yep. a suburb or, or in Nebraska or in, in LA or San Francisco or wherever? Like, I just think we need to like, just everybody chill the hell out. Yeah. What can, what can you do? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're naming some real, real struggles, real tension that all of us wrestle with. I mean, there are folks that do want to do stuff. And I think what we wrestle with most is uh, we're overly ambitious. Yeah. And as a result, that overambition is paralyzing us. And so I don't want to knock people's dreams. I don't want to somehow cut people down. That's not my intent. But when we're trying to go from A to Z in yeah. one week, and in some ways, in our kind of social media culture where we're talking about what it means to go viral, all of these things, while there is a conversation to be had around it, if we're not careful, it actually undermines what we're trying to do. 100%. You know, I, I think Mother Teresa's wisdom here is really apropos when she says, if you want to change the world, just start with the person near you. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something to that, you know, and if we all do our part and as we grow in that journey, I think there are going to be opportunities and moments when the small things that we started uh, has the ability to grow in capacity. And so we would never have imagined, to be honest with you, that one day's wages would grow. Now, I only have two full time staff, two part time staff volunteer my time at one day's wages. Uh, but last year, we were able to grant out about $1.3 million. Amazing. Uh, again, just because of just everyday people. Uh, we have some folks that are able to give larger sums of money, some folks that are giving $5, $10. We have little kids that are giving their piggy banks to us. It's all beautiful. I think it's all because we're trying to do our part uh, in, in caring and in giving a damn. Um, so I, I, I love what you just shared about sometimes, you know, we can just be. Um, think 
way up here in the clouds and end up not doing anything uh, and binge watch watch Netflix, which is what I did last night. I'm sorry. No, and and there's <laughs> the, the thing is that might be the what's what's on the menu for the night, right? It's like just chill and and you got you got to take time, dude. I crash, I go so hard, and my wife's like, dude, slow down, and then I'll crash, right? And then then I have you know occasionally I have my nights. I'm not. This is not like an anti watching sure. Netflix thing, but it is a pro. I think uh, some things that I can pick out of your story is when you decided, right, ten years ago or whatever it was, we're gonna give a year of our wages, right? What did you say next? Three years of preparation for that. People also, I think another reason why we're, we're more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually doing it is because we want things, and you mentioned virality too, right? The social media viralness or just things. We want, we would much rather, we kind of get like starstruck with, you know, Tony Robbins giving away 100 million meals this year or whatever the case may be, you know? Things that Charity Water and all these organizations are doing. And it's like, th- those things didn't happen overnight. That's right. They took years and 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 the very fact that you were able to do that a decade ago with your wife and kids and form one day's wages was because of a whole lifetime of experiences. So we've got to get really good as humans to say, you know what? I want to be a damn giver uh, uh 50 years from now. Hmm. Not just not not trying to get some like viral thing going, but I want to be that's doing right. this for the long haul. So I need to put in the work today. What can I do yeah. today that's super small? You know, uh, that's helping somebody today. Could be a dollar, could be a good deed, could be anything. But like start now and then build those up so that you can become a. a I mean, giving a damn does not happen overnight. And if yeah. it does happen overnight, you're probably not doing it well because you've got to yeah. you've got to crash and burn a few times. You've got to piss off a few people. You've got to do it really wrong. You've got to check your motives. You've got to work on humility and integrity and all those things. So if you haven't been, if you've been doing it overnight and you're like, oh, look at me. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. Like I've been doing it since I started giving a damn on my own when I was 12 years old, living in Guatemala, didn't know the language yet, just started doing stuff with this lady named Susie Wolpert. And she's still doing it 20 something years later, which is amazing. Yeah. But like, that's when I started and it's taken me from 12 to 36 now, 24 years to get to this place where I can say some of these things. And I'm yeah. still a young pup when it comes to giving a damn. Mm-hmm. Like I still have yeah. so much to learn, right? So I think it's this not not being in it for the, the marathon, but maybe more for like the 100 yard dash, right? Like we did yeah. in school. Like that's not, what does that do? Well, you know, you you said a word in your last sentence that really is important to me is, and which I didn't really talk about or know about when I was younger. And it's just a marathon, a perspective, a yeah. theology, a praxis of marathon. And we all understand that there are seasons we've got to sprint, but it's just not sustainable. If we look at justice work or giving a damn as a sprint, we don't need people that are going to burn out after 100 yards. We want people to be in it for the long haul. And so I think having these conversations about not just giving a damn, but doing it in a way with, that reflects integrity, that in, uh, it reflects humility, that it reflects collaboration, uh, and having a whole trajectory of knowing these things. Because I can tell you that while I cared about things when I was in my teens or in my college years, I'm really grateful for all the uh, lessons that I've learned, good and bad, that's made me who I am now. Because it's made me not just someone who gives a damn, but I want to be a wiser person Yeah, yep. that gives a damn. And I think we need wisdom in this work, especially right now. Yeah, no, that's super great. I want to spend the last section of our conversation on your new book. But before that, let's talk about, you mentioned earlier, you're leaving your beloved Pacific Northwest and you're moving east. You're moving east, I, I presume, for this new role as uh, the president of Bread for the World. Talk about how that came about briefly and why you're taking that role and why it's important enough to you to move to, to take this role that is going to require you to move to um, uh, this city on the East Coast, far away from the land that you love. Oh, DC it's, is still a great city, but it's yeah. not, it's no, it's no Seattle or San Francisco. No, but I am going from one Washington to the other Washington yes, you are. with the letters DC behind it. You know, it's not anything that I imagined or planned or even desired, to be honest with you. I stepped down from a church that my wife and I planted about two years ago. And after 18, 19 years, we stepped down. It's an amazing, healthy, flourishing church. Uh, I think, I'm, to be honest, I kind of went through a midlife reflection, midlife crisis as I was Mm. turning 50. I was having some morbid thoughts like, you know what? I may have about 15 robust years left. How do I want to 
How do I want to invest those 15 years? Now, again, who knows how many years I have left, but in terms of like robust, still high energy years, and I just wanted to really make the most impact with the years that I have left. And while I'll continue to do one day's wages, uh, the call or the invitation at Bread for the World was really, really unique because they are a Christian advocacy organization that urges lawmakers uh, to help shape policies and laws and budgets that more reflect compassion, empathy, justice, kingdom-mindedness, that more reflect this idea that, you know, as human beings, part of what it means to be a human being is that we should all care and give a damn. And uh, we're not impacting just hundreds of people or thousands of people, but we're impacting millions and millions of people, not just mm. in our own cities and country, but around the world. Just to give an example, uh, this has been a brutal week. You know, I'll officially become president and CEO on July 1, but I'm working behind the scenes, onboarding, kind of engaging our team on policies and engaging Congress right now. And because we're living in this COVID-19 season, as you know, man, it has been so gut-wrenching to see those really just raw, vulnerable images of miles of cars waiting for food banks and food yeah. lines, right? Just for one or two bags of food. And then we haven't really been exposed to what's going on globally, right? There are nations, uh, Central, uh, Central Republic of Africa, for example, they have three ventilators for their entire country, for their My entire God. country. Mm. There's probably a handful of nations right now that have under 10 ventilators for their entire nation, which is the reason why some nations are going in like these absolute control lockdown because they're yeah. so petrified what could happen. But yeah, it's been a really intense period because we're working behind the scenes with other coalition members to urge our lawmakers to say, hey, we get it that you're bailing out companies and small businesses and the airline industry. We get that. We're not against those things, but man, we have to, we've got to be thinking about those whose margins are very, very small just to begin with, right? So uh, our family, we've been affected by COVID-19, big loss of income, but we've never had to worry about our next meal or the next week's meal or the next month's meal. We haven't had to worry about rent and what have you, but there are so many people. Just yesterday, uh, we read reports that 40% of American families with under $49,000 in income are unemployed and have lost their jobs. 40%. I mean, that stunned me yeah. when I read that. Um, and then we're told that by the uh, World Food Program and the United Nations, that those who are going to experience starvation in the world in the next year uh, might double in the next year. And so um, this is part of the reason why I joined uh, Bread for the World. And I'm really excited and humbled and burdened uh, to, to lead the organization is because we want people to urge our lawmakers. We know that it, it can't just be you. It can't just be me. It just can't be a church. It can't just be a company. It also involves our government to do their part as well, especially in our nation. It happens to be and constantly advertises itself to be the greatest nation on the earth. And so we want to make sure that it's great in the way that it cares for those who are vulnerable and marginalized, particularly around issues of hunger and poverty. That's really beautiful. I'm 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 so glad um, that you're going to be in D.C. I mean, D.C. is such a such an influential city, not just for our country but for the world. And I think you'll be a great addition to, um, you know, others there like John Cotton Richmond, who you know took a friend of mine who you probably know who who he is, and he, you know he was on the podcast a, little, a couple of years ago. But, you know, him taking a role in the White House as the ambassador for you know against human trafficking, and like I I have very little hope in our political system, in our politicians. I don't trust any of them, or I shouldn't say any of them, but it's very hard to trust them because you, mm -hmm. I mean, you just, you, you see the yep, stories, and you, you see the leaks and you hear like all the stuff. So it's, it's really great to know that there are more people like yourself that are heading there uh, in the hopes of kind of building up that integrity and building up like caring for, you know, you talked about America and how great we like to say that she is, even though we're far down on the list on a lot of the things that matter, right? And so I think you you have the right perspective was, yeah, let's be great, but let's be great in the things that actually matter. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. It does not matter 
if we are the wealthiest country in the world or, you know, in the top five, it doesn't mm. matter if we have, you know, some of the metrics that we look at. It's if we're not, if we're not feeding people, if, mm-hmm. if people don't have health care that they could rely on, if they're not being fed, if there's not a living wage that they can live and thrive right. by, none of the other metrics that we're using actually matter. So super excited that you all are going to be there. Um, well, Nick, let me just give a, one little story and perspective yeah. about why this week has been so hard and challenging for our staff. Uh, just yesterday, you know, uh, the Democrats proposed for the next stimulus bill uh, $3 trillion. And the next few weeks, they're going to see both parties go at it and argue and all that kind of stuff and produce something. A $3 trillion bill uh, called the HEROES Act. Uh, H-E-R-O-E-S uh, is the Hero Stimulus Act. And uh, our coalition, uh, we were really pleased that they accepted the 15% increase in SNAP benefits, which basically is the modern version of food stamps for those who are experiencing hunger in our country. So we were really pleased with that. Uh, But we were stunned that um, a coalition of advocacy organizations proposed $12 billion to be added to international aid because of what's going on. And we were just stunned that in a $3 trillion bill, they took out the proposal for $12 Mm. billion for international aid, which is going to have a dramatic impact. So the the fight isn't over, you know? And so this is is why I would urge people who might not know a bread, check us out, join us, bread.org. Because we want people to raise their voices, like do what you're doing, like do you do what you're doing, give a damn in your context, in your communities, in your churches, but also join others around the nation, urging our lawmakers to do their part from a government perspective to say, as you articulate, let's be great, but let's be great in the things that really do matter. Um, I'm a proud, naturalized American citizen, uh, but sometimes it concerns me at the decrease at the uh, sickness of the lack of empathy that I feel yeah. like is just brewing uh, within our systems and even in our respective hearts. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to get into that, but I, I, I totally, it's one thing I've been thinking about a lot. I'm about to have a conversation tomorrow with uh, my friend David on Instagram live. He's a former NFL player, great guy, gives a damn in so many ways. And one of the things we're going to talk about is this idea of freedom and liberty, right? It's something that we tout and we talk about it all the time. And, you know, we see these protests and again, let's just take the politics out of it. All these protests that are happening, like you can't tell me what to do. You can't do all these things like ah, blah, 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 blah. And there's so much anger and, you know, spitting <laughs> each other's faces and guns and stuff. And it's like, uh, and I, I had a conversation with a, a, a friend of mine yesterday who uh, is a libertarian and I respect some things about that party and I let's have a conversation, right? But one thing I can't, deal with. And, and, and one thing I want to talk more about with more people on all sides of all areas of the spectrum is liberty, freedom is not me being able to do whatever the hell I want. That is not freedom. That is, there's so much bondage in that. Let's look at the course of history. Those that were able to do whatever they wanted, uh, a lot of things that went, went wrong. It's, it's not that it's doing freedom to do whatever we ought to do. Mm-mm. Right, and that mm. that's going to include what's good for you, Eugene. What's good for me? What's mm. good for my neighbor? Because mm. we all win. When my neighbor wins, I win. When the person I don't even know wins in the next state over, I mm. win. I like that. If, if we're good. truly, you know, and so I think there's a big conversation that needs to happen. Which let's let's just jump into the last part of our conversation right now. Let's talk about your your book, right? Because you just wrote a book. It was out on March one, I think, called "Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk: A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics." Um, this is a, uh, a very timely book, I think for, for not just for, I think, uh, do you think people that aren't Christians could even read this and glean from it? I I think so. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I've been so encouraged by the number of, uh, you know, quote unquote, non-Christians, non-religious people that have written to me to say how much they appreciated the book. Um, that there were some parts that they didn't fully understand because of their different lens, but there was a good chunk of it. Uh, that really spoke to the toxicity that exists in our, not just in our politics, but our culture as a whole. So absolutely, I think it's a book that anyone can read and hopefully glean from. When did you decide to, I think uh, some very some very interesting things happened 2015, 2016, that I think heightened the, the, the uh, ferociousness of 
discussions and debates, right? And now there's so much, more than any other time in my short lifetime, so much animosity and so much hatred and so much, if we don't agree on everything, we can't agree at all and screw you, you're over there and I'm over here. So when did you start to write this book? Did it start in the 1516 or or what was going on that prompted you to write a book called Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk? so So interestingly, uh, I gave a talk about this very topic and I entitled it 10 Commandments for How Christians Ought to Engage Politics. And I gave this about, about uh, 11, 12 years ago. So think about several cycles of elections sure. when President Obama was running against, I think, Mitt Romney. And yep. it was just intense. I mean, it has been intense for a long time. And I think you're right. The last five, six years, it's on a different level. Yeah. Um, and I was just so perturbed uh, by the rhetoric that was spewing in our larger culture and society. But then you're right. About three or four years ago, I just got to a point where I just realized, man, this is the idolatry. This is the disease that is going to come back and hurt our society, our churches, our citizens, all of the above. And so when I began to write it, I started it about three years ago, started writing it, and I quit writing it four times. Like literally, I said some choice words that I can't say just in case my wife is listening to me and she scares me sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I just, I can't write this because yeah. I was afraid of the very uh, culture you were talking about. Like, if you're for me, we're great. If you're not in agreement with me, you're my enemy and I'm here to destroy you, that kind of mentality. And so I, I quit writing it four times, but each time I just felt that much more... The word isn't convicted. I just felt really burdened. I, I, this is a book written out of burden. Like I, I'm really concerned about our society. I'm concerned about the church. I'm, I'm concerned about our politics, and uh, managed to write it. Write it, and it's been it's been hard to be honest with you. There's been a lot of affirmations as I expected, and then there's been a lot of folks that I've also written back. I just did an interview with Washington Post about a month ago when I responded to a tweet by President Trump. I try to be as respectful as I could be, uh, but I took exception to his usage of calling COVID-19. It's been universally called COVID-19 coronavirus with the exception of the first maybe month when it was called the Wuhan virus. Sure. But you know, he went through a season or a kind of a little uh, period where he called it Chinese virus. And I took exception to that because there's been thousands upon thousands of documented cases of verbal, physical abuse, harassment that Asians and Asian Americans here and around the world have experienced, including my own family. So I, I wrote a response and that tweet just went, I mean, it went crazy. And with the Washington Post picked it up, it went crazy. Uh, I got probably about 5,000 emails, comments saying, wow. go back home. Uh, I'm going to buy your book just to burn it. Um, so I responded, at least buy it uh, first. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah. And it was, to be honest, it was, it was kind of discouraging, you know, because there were such brutal, um, some blatantly racist comments. But in, in the big picture, like, that's why I wrote the book. You know, I wrote the book because... We have a sickness, uh, we have a disease, whatever you want to call it, and we have to confront it. Um, my antidote that I speak about in the book is I'm not going to demonize and dehumanize those that disagree with me, even if I feel like what they're doing is absolutely, uh, it lacks decency. I'm not going to dehumanize them. We just have to find a better way. And by suggesting a better way in our politics, I'm not suggesting that that's permission for us to be soft in the views or convictions that we have. Sometimes people misconstrue a third way or a middle path as us saying, this is, these are code words for, no, we're not giving a damn. No, I'm saying, let's give a damn, but let's be human in this process. We can't lose our souls in the process because it's not going to change overnight or at the next election at the end of this year. It's going to take years for us as a nation, as a society, to kind of recapture what it means to have a level of respect, empathy, decency, civility, even as we, and I I love how you began the podcast, like we should absolutely have the freedom to argue and duke it out. We, We have to do that. 
Um, the opposite of it is just like bullying people to the point that everyone's afraid to even have conversations. So then it's the extremists. It's the small minority extremists that are dominating the airwaves. And I just think there's a lot of folks in the middle, um, not necessarily politically middle, but just somewhere in the middle that yep. know that this isn't working and we've got to find a better way. Yeah, I mean, I am, it's it's no secret to anybody that knows me that I am, you know, uh, politically and societally left on most issues. Uh, uh, but I have a huge problem. I have a tremendously huge problem with the far left in the same ways that I have a problem with the far right. There, you know, the, it's it's the people that call for, you know, just just massive amounts of inclusivity and acceptance and, you know, everything goes except for if you don't if you don't agree with my my conclusion on x y or z issue and then it's like fuck you like you're out right yeah that's yep. how is that even and, and 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 i and i'm saying this like if i had a mirror in front of me cuz i've had moments like that they're not they're not it's definitely the exception to the rule for me but i've had yep. moments where i've acted that way where it's like well if you don't then get out and it's yep. like that is not a way to live like we can we've been doing it for the entirety of history, like those yeah. that have the most success in actually coming up with, you know, pointing out problems and then coming up with solutions are yeah. those that bring all the views to the table. And like, we can talk those out and it's going to get a little heated and I'm okay with yeah. that. Um, let's get a little heated because these are big issues. These are important issues right. that we're talking about right. when we're talking about LGBTQ stuff, when we're talking about people's welfare and their minimum wage and healthcare, like those are not issues to be trifled with. But if I, the last thing I ever want is to be speaking into an echo chamber. I don't want to be preaching to the choir. And, right. and, so, and so that's so much of what we're doing now. We can curate our social media profiles, right? And like kick everybody else out. We're blocking endlessly. And so now when I post something about X, Y, or Z issue, all I get is praise. All I get is people saying, oh, that's spot on. That is so great. You're so mm. right. And that just affirms me versus letting my, you know, having tons of conservatives, you know, follow me and libertarians and this and that and far left and far right. I want, because I need to be kept in check too. So I yeah. think, but there's a way to do that while still like, you know, not being, uh, there's a way to do all of that without being a jerk. And it can be hard and it can be hard to listen to and hard to say the things, uh, but we can do it all without, you said that, you said it, dehumanizing each other. Like yeah. we are all humans. We've all got perspectives. We've all got different stories, places we've come from, hurts, things we've experienced. I can't talk to you about any number of issues the same way I talk to my white Caucasian friend who uh, you know, lived in Omaha, Nebraska growing up and has never experienced, never been side-eyed by one person in their lives walking through a store or when a virus comes to America that may have originated in Wuhan, like now- it's your fault. You know, you tweeted that one, that one, you know, the guy said, you ought to burn this book. You're a jerk. China virus came from China. Why are you not going after the China? It wasn't even, it wasn't even, you know, great formatting or, you know, sentence <laughs> structure, but you know, like, uh, anyway, we could go on and on, but you, right, you, right. you get it. No, I, mean, I think it's, I think it's really important. And I, I do hope, um, you know, I, I really believe in this book, uh, I just want, you know, obviously this book came out a couple months ago. So all the plans for the book tour is no longer around, but I, I still really believe in the book, especially during this election season. I share 10 practical chapters for people to check out. One of the stories that I share in this book that I think is really important is uh, a movement called MADA, um, a play on MAGA, Make America Dinner Again. And there were these mm. two Asian American women that were so crushed after the last presidential election, right? And that's typically what happens now in our political season. Half the nation gets really crushed. Half the, half the nation feels like God answered our prayers. You know, we're great. And it just switches back and forth. Yep, but yep. You know, they were so distraught by the election that as they assessed their own lives, they wanted to speak to their friends who would have voted for President Trump and they realized that they didn't know a single person that voted for President Trump. And it speaks wow. to kind of your, either our intentional or unintentional ways that we create echo chambers where we surround ourselves with people that look like us, think like us, feel like us, and then praise us. And to their credit, they did something about it. They really wanted to better understand other people's perspectives because they realized they had no clue so they put something out on social media, invited people for dinner. You bring a plate. Everyone brings a dish. We're not going to argue or fight, but let's have a conversation. Let's talk about issues that really matter to us. 
And that gave birth to this thing called Make America Dinner Again that, you know, I'm not suggesting that this fuzzy notion that a meal is going to change the world or even change reviews, but I'm convinced that when we choose to break bread with people, like have substantive conversations, it's going to actually make you a better human. Yep. And you've got to be a better human to be able to learn to be a good neighbor to others, right? Because I think right now to be a good neighbor is let's just bully people into submission. Uh, and so I, I joined my local Seattle Make America Dinner Again, had a lot of really intense, contentious issues immigration, human sexuality, politics, war, cannabis, I mean, all of the above. And we didn't solve anything. Uh, you know, we didn't solve the national debt, but um, I think it really did make me a better listener, you know, because I'm, I'm so set on wanting to correct people. Um, so I talk about that in the book as well, along with other things. No, I mean, Make America Dinner Again is great. I'm going to find it and link to it in the show notes of this conversation. Also, you know, there's something similar happening all over the country with the People's Supper. Mickey Scott Bay Jones, you mm. know, and her team have started the People's Supper. I totally agree with you. The best conversations I've had are over a meal, over a few beers, uh, cigars. Like there's something about having that common thing that you guys are enjoying. And it, it, I think mostly like, you know, of all the things I just mentioned, the thing we need the most is food, right? We can do without the beers and the cigars, but there is something about doing that common thing together that brings everybody to a level playing field. Now we're all, we're all being nourished in the same way by the same thing. The guard comes down. I've done very similar suppers where people from all over the spectrum come together. I mean, I've had very conservative, uh, you know, Trump-ish supporters sitting across from my friend Bin Yad, who's an Iraqi Muslim refugee that hmm. actually got stopped coming into America on Muslim Band Day. They were coming in January 27, 2017, and they got sent back because it was the day that he said, no more Muslims coming in, right? So, and they're sitting across having a fantastic conversation about these really hmm. intense, you know, issues. And so, I, I, yeah, it really is beautiful. I'm excited to share uh, this book with people. Uh, let's let's end with me pointing out a quote that you shared a couple days ago. You shared a you shared a Nowen quote. Nowen is one of my favorite humans, uh, Dutch Catholic priest. Just I mean, just so much gold from that man and his life and legacy. But you shared a quote, which is these questions: Did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and resentment? Did I forgive? And did I love? These are the real questions. I mean, I can't think of a better way to finish this conversation than mm -hmm. with those wonderful questions. I mean, you can't, if you're having a shitty day and you've been too much on Twitter reading, you know, this tweet and that tweet, or you're doing, if you sit down and ask these questions of yourself, mm -hmm. like things have to change. Like you can't go on, you can't move on from asking yeah. yourself, did I forgive? Did I love, did I let go of resentment and anger? And then just go about still being pissed off about everything. Like things change when you ask those questions. So I think there's some real, uh, yeah, man, I, you know, let, let me close with this. Yeah, I, please do. You know, I think sometimes when you give a damn, it's really possible and even seductive for us to point the finger at others. Uh, to think about structural, institutional injustice, and those are real and there are conversations to be had. But I think when we're having this conversation about caring and giving a damn, it's the greatest temptation for me, at least, is to look to others and never to look within as well. Yep. And these questions, if somebody were to ask me right off the top of the bat, like, hey, what's your recommendation about give a damn? That now in quote might be a great place yeah. to start and end. Yeah. Um, and so it's actually something that I try to do in my morning and in the evening. Very simple, very profound, uh, and it's haunting. And there are days, probably like you, where I go, man, this was a sucky day. Yeah. Um, I'm grateful for an opportunity, hopefully, to wake up the next morning to start again. So thanks so much for having me on the show, man. Eugene, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Uh, so many blessings uh, on what you're doing, and uh, we'll keep in touch. All right. Take care. Friends, I hope you enjoyed our chat. I know I did. And please go buy his book, 
Thou shalt not be a jerk. Whether or not you're a Christian or a person of faith, I think you'll find this book super accessible, super helpful. You know, it gets easier and easier to be a jerk in this highly charged social media world we live in. We all need all the help we can get to not be jerks each and every day. So go buy this book. You can follow Eugene on all the socials at Eugene Cho and visit his website to learn more about him and the work that he's doing, eugenecho.com. You can find Let's Give a Damn on all the socials at Let's Give a Damn. You can find me on all the socials at Nick LaPara. And please hit us up, hello at letsgiveadam.com if you need anything at all. If you want to chat about anything at all, we're here for you. This show was created by me, produced by Chad Snavely, and the music is by our friend Propaganda. We are part of the Matter Media family, and we're so grateful for their partnership. Please share this episode with a friend or two or 10 or 12. Just please, friend today, just please share it. And please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps. Come hang out with us next week and the next and the one after that. Tons of great conversations coming at you very soon. Sending so much love and light to each one of you. Keep it giving a damn, my friends. Peace. Peace.